0: Chapter six of the Custom of the Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Custom of the Country by Edith Wharton. Chapter six. Upstairs, in his brown, firelit room, he threw himself into an armchair and remembered. Harvard first, then Oxford, then a year of wandering and rich initiation. Returning to New York he had read law, and now had his desk in the office of the respectable firm in whose charge the Dagonet estate had moldered for several generations. But his profession was the least real thing in his life. The realities lay about him now—the books jamming his old college bookcases and overflowing on chairs and tables sketches too he could do charming things if only he had known how to finish them and on the writing-table at his elbow scattered sheets of prose and verse charming things also but like the sketches unfinished nothing in the dagonet and marvell tradition was opposed to this desultory dabbling with life For four or five generations it had been the rule of both houses that a young fellow should go to Columbia or Harvard, read law, and then lapse into more or less cultivated inaction. The only essential was that he should live like a gentleman, that is, with a tranquil disdain for mere money-getting, a passive openness to the finer sensations, one or two fixed principles as to the quality of wine, and an archaic probity that had not yet learned to distinguish between private and business honor. No equipment could more thoroughly have unfitted the modern youth for getting on. It hardly needed the scribbled pages on the desk to complete the hopelessness of Ralph Marvell's case. He had accepted the fact with a humorous fatalism. Material resources were limited on both sides of the house, but there would always be enough for his frugal wants—enough to buy books, not editions, and pay now and then for a holiday dash to the great centers of art and ideas and meanwhile there was the world of wonders within him. As a boy at the seaside, Ralph, between tides, had once come on a cave, a secret, inaccessible place with glaucus lights, mysterious murmurs, and a single shaft of communication with the sky. He had kept his find from the other boys, not churlishly, for he was always an outspoken lad but because he felt there were things about the cave that the others, good fellows as they all were, couldn't be expected to understand, and that anyhow it would never be quite his cave again after he had let his thick-set, freckled cousins play smuggler and pirate in it. And so with his inner world. Though so coloured by outer impressions, it wove a secret curtain about him, and he came and went in it with the same joy of furtive possession. One day, of course, some one would discover it and reign there with him. no reign over it and him once or twice already, a light foot had reached the threshold. His cousin, Claire Dagonet, for instance, there had been a summer when her voice had sounded far down the windings, but he had run over to Spain for the autumn, and when he came back, she was engaged to Peter van degen, and for a while it looked black in the cave that was long ago, as time is reckoned under thirty and for three years now he had felt for her only a half-contemptuous pity—to have stood at the mouth of his cave, and have turned from it to the Van Degen lair. Poor Clare repented indeed. She wanted it clearly, but she repented in the Van Degen diamonds, and the Van Degen motor bore her broken heart from opera to ball. She had been subdued to what she worked in, and she could never again find her way to the enchanted cave. Ralph, since then, had reached the point of deciding that he would never marry reached it not suddenly or dramatically, but with such sober advisedness as is urged on those about to take the opposite step. What he most wanted, now that the first flutter of being was over, was to learn and to do, to know what the great people had thought, think about their thinking, and then launch his own boat, write some good verse, if possible, if not, then critical prose. A dramatic poem lay among the stuff at his elbow but the prose critic was at his elbow too and not to be satisfied about the poem and poet and critic passed the nights in hot if unproductive debate on the whole it seemed likely that the critic would win the day and the essay on the rhythmical structures of walt whitman takes shape before the banished god Yet if the light in the cave was less supernaturally blue, the chant of its tides less laden with unimaginable music, it was still a thronged and echoing place when Undine Sprague appeared on its threshold. His mother and sister, of course, wanted him to marry. They had the usual theory that he was made for conjugal bliss—women always thought that of a fellow who didn't get drunk and have low tastes. Ralph smiled at the idea as he sat crouched among his secret treasures. Marry, But whom, in the name of light and freedom? The daughters of his own race sold themselves to the invaders, the daughters of the invaders bought their husbands as they bought an opera-box. It ought all to have been transacted on the stock exchange. His mother, he knew, had no such ambitions for him. She would have liked him to fancy a nice girl like Harriet Ray. Harriet Ray was neither vulgar nor ambitious. She regarded Washington Square as the birthplace of society, knew by heart all the cousinships of early New York, hated motor-cars, could not make herself understood on the telephone, and was determined, if she married, never to receive a divorced woman. As Mrs. Marvell often said, such girls as Harriet were growing rare." Ralph was not sure about this. He was inclined to think that, certain modifications allowed for, there would always be plenty of Harriet Rays for unworldly mothers to commend to their sons, and he had no desire to diminish their number by removing one from the ranks of the marriageable. He had no desire to marry at all. That had been the whole truth of it till he met Undine Sprague. And now? He lit a cigar, and began to recall his hour's conversation with Mrs. Sprague. Ralph had never taken his mother's social faiths very seriously. Surveying the march of civilization from a loftier angle, he had early mingled with the invaders, and curiously observed their rites and customs, but most of those he had met had already been modified by contact with the indigenous. They spoke the same language as his, though on their lips it had often so different a meaning. Ralph had never seen them actually in the making, before they had acquired the speech of the conquered race. But Mrs. Sprague still used the dialect of her people, and before the end of the visit Ralph had ceased to regret that her daughter was out. He felt obscurely that in the girl's presence, frank and simple as he thought her, he should have learned less of life in early Apex. Mrs. Sprague, once reconciled, or at least resigned, to the mysterious necessity of having to entertain a friend of Undine's, had yielded to the first touch on the weak springs of her garrulity she had not seen mrs heeny for two days and this friendly young man with a gentle manner was almost as easy to talk to as the masseuse and then she could tell him things that mrs heeny already knew and mrs Spragg liked to repeat her stories to do so gave her almost her sole sense of permanence among the shifting scenes of life so that, after she had lengthily deplored the untoward accident of Undine's absence, and her visitor, with a smile, and echoes of divers et endoyon in his brain, had repeated her daughter's name after her, saying, It's a wonderful find. How could I tell you it would be such a fit? It came to her quite easily to answer. Why we called her after a hair waver father put on the market the week she was born. And then to explain, as he remained struck and silent, it's from undelay, you know, the French for crimping. Father always thought the name made it take. He was quite a scholar and had the greatest knack for finding names. I remember the time he invented his Goliath glue he sat up all night over the Bible to get the name. No, Father didn't start in as a druggist," she went on, expanding with the signs of Marvell's interest. He was educated for an undertaker, and built up a first-class business, but he was always a beautiful speaker, and after a while he sort of drifted into the ministry. Of course it didn't pay him anything like as well, so finally he opened a drug-store, and he did first rate at that, too, though his heart was always in the pulpit. But after he made such a success with his hair-waver he got speculating in land out at Apex, and somehow everything went, though Mr. Sprague did all he could. Mrs. Sprague, when she found herself embarked on a long sentence, always ballasted it by italicizing the last word. Her husband, she continued, could not at the time do much for his father-in-law. Mr. Sprague had come to Apex as a poor boy, and their early married life had been a protracted struggle, darkened by domestic affliction. Two of their three children had died of typhoid in the epidemic which devastated Apex before the new waterworks were built, and this calamity, by causing Mr. Sprague to resolve that thereafter Apex should drink pure water, had led directly to the founding of his fortunes. He had taken over some of poor father's land for a bad debt, and when he got up the pure water move the company voted to buy the land and build the new reservoir up there and after that we began to be better off and it did seem as if it had come out so to comfort us some about the children mr spragg thereafter had begun to be a power in apex and fat years had followed on the lean ralph marvell was too little versed in affairs to read between the lines of mrs spragg's untutored narrative and he understood no more than she the occult connection between mr spragg's domestic misfortunes and his business triumph Mr. Sprague had helped out his ruined father-in-law, and had vowed on his children's graves that no apex child should ever again drink poisoned water. And out of those two disinterested impulses, by some impressive law of compensation, material prosperity had come. What Ralph understood and appreciated was Mrs. Sprague's unaffected frankness in talking of her early life. Here was no retrospective pretense of an opulent past, such as the other invaders were given to parading before the bland but undeceived subject race. The Spraggs had been plain people, and had not yet learned to be ashamed of it. The fact drew them much closer to the Dagonet ideals than any sham elegance in the past tense. Ralph felt that his mother, who shuddered away from Mrs. Harmon B. Driscoll, would understand and esteem Mrs. Sprague. But how long would their virgin innocence last? People's vulgar hands were on it already—people's and the unspeakable Van Degen's. Once they and theirs had begun the process of initiating Undine, there was no knowing —or rather there was too easy knowing—how it would end. It was incredible that she too should be destined to swell the ranks of the cheaply fashionable. Yet were not her very freshness, her malleability the mark of her fate? She was still at the age when the flexible soul offers itself to the first grasp. That the grasp should chance to be Van Degen's—that was what made Ralph's temples buzz, and swept away all his plans for his future like a beaver's dam in a spring flood. To save her from Van Degen and Van Degenism—was that really to be his mission, the call for which his life had obscurely waited? It was not in the least what he had meant to do with the fugitive flash of consciousness he called self but all that he had purposed for that transitory being sank into insignificance under the pressure of Undine's claims. Ralph Marvell's notion of women had been formed on the experiences common to good-looking young men of his kind. Women were drawn to him as much by his winning appealing quality, by the sense of a youthful warmth behind his light ironic exterior, as by his charms of face and mind. Except during Clare Dagonet's brief reign, the depths in him had not been stirred. But in taking what each sentimental episode had to give, he had preserved, through all his minor adventures, his faith in the great adventure to come. It was this faith that made him so easy a victim when love had at last appeared clad in the attributes of romance, the imaginative man's indestructible dream of a rounded passion. The clearness with which he judged the girl and himself seemed the surest proof that his feeling was more than a surface thrill. He was not blind to her crudity and her limitations, but they were a part of her grace and her persuasion. Divers et endoyante, so he had seen her from the first. But was not that merely the sign of a quicker response to the world's manifold appeal? There was Harriet Ray, sealed up tight in the vacuum of inherited opinion, where not a breath of fresh sensation could get at her. There could be no call to rescue young ladies so secured from the perils of reality undine had no such traditional safeguards ralph guessed mrs sprague's opinions to be as fluid as her daughter's and the girl's very sensitiveness to new impressions combined with her obvious lack of any sense of relative values would make her an easy prey to the powers of folly he seemed to see her as he sat there pressing his fists into his temples he seemed to see her like a lovely rock-bound Andromeda, with the devouring monster Society careering up to make a mouthful of her, and himself whirling down on his winged horse just Pegasus turned Rosinant for the nonce, to cut her bonds, snatch her up, and whirl her back into the blue. End of chapter 6